0: Heavenly Father, we need you to be gracious to us this morning. We come to you heavy-laden. We come to you burdened with many distractions and many entanglements. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to praise your holy name. We want Christ to be magnified for his infinite worth and his supremacy and his divine superiority over everything. we can't do any of that on our own. We can't do that. We need to hear from you, Father. We need a work of your Holy Spirit. We need you to pour out your Spirit on us. Would you do that, please? Please overcome our dull hearts. Overcome our blind eyes. Overcome my lisping tongue. Let us hear from Christ this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we are looking at the Great Commission recorded at the end of the book of Matthew. And in many ways, the Great Commission is a statement all about authority. As I was thinking about the passage this week, I was reminded of the story of the faithful centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Do you guys know that story? This is a man who understood authority. You know, the centurion, he comes to Jesus and he wants to be healed. He wants his servant who's been paralyzed to be healed. And Jesus says that he'll do it. He says, I'll come and I'll do it. And then the centurion makes this remarkable statement. He says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my servant do this and he does it. And Jesus is amazed at his faith and he immediately heals the servant. You remember that story? It's remarkable. You see, this soldier was a man who understood authority. He knew that the greater commands the lesser. He knew that the greater sends the lesser, not the other way around. The greater tells the lesser to do his bidding. And he knew that all those under authority are to do what they're told. And most critically of all, this man knew that Jesus was an authority over him. You know, I was thinking about this story because our passage deals with the authority of Jesus Christ in our due response to that authority. And I think we could learn a lot from this centurion. So would you take out your bulletin, a white bulletin here that might be helpful to you as we go through our sermon today. The theme as I put it on the top of the outline is simple. Jesus is using his authority to expand his kingdom through the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Now, this is a very familiar passage. And, of course, the danger with familiar passages is that we don't tend to pay them very much attention. We tend to just skip right over them. So let me encourage you this morning to come to this text with fresh eyes and fresh ears. Come to this text and leave behind all your assumptions and all of your preconceptions about this verse that you've read many times before. Because let me tell you, there are nuanced and profound truths contained in these final words from Jesus. And if we listen to them with ears of faith, the implications are staggering. So when we pick up our passage, we're at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus has already taught in Israel for three years. He's already suffered in Jerusalem. He's already died on the cross and he's risen from the dead. Our story comes sometime in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, probably right near the end. These are some of the very last instructions that Jesus gave his people before ascending into heaven. It is hard to overstate the significance and the importance of these words from Jesus. We start with this first section, authority claimed. Jesus begins by saying that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And you need to know that Jesus didn't make this claim in a vacuum. He didn't just say this out of nowhere. All through the book of Matthew, the authority of Jesus has been referenced and established, built up over time. Let me give you a couple highlights. In the very beginning, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is introduced as the son of King David, and he shows his kingly authority by receiving kingly gifts from the wise men. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and he astonishes the crowds, by teaching with authority. In chapter 8, he demonstrates his authority over demons. You remember, he casts out a legion of demons into the swine, and they rush into the, into the, red, into the uh, Sea of Galilee. He shows his authority to forgive sins when he heals a paralyzed man. He says, which is harder for me to say? Get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven. It says that it shows that the Son of Man has authority even to forgive sins. And at Jesus' death... Do you remember the charge? He was charged as the king of the Jews, a charge that was a lot more real than Pilate realized. So here at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after his resurrection, Jesus claims the divine right and says that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, has been given to him. This kingly rule and divine authority has been given to Jesus by his Father in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority in power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet. I want you to just think about that for a moment. This means that Christ rules over all the heavenly beings. Every angel, every demon, even the devil himself is under Christ's authority. It means that Christ rules over all creation. It means that all the plants, all the animals, all the stars, all the planets, everything is under his rule. He rules over all people, every nation, every country, every nationality, every family is under his dominion. He rules over them all. And he certainly rules over you. There is no realm in the whole universe where Christ does not have supreme authority. Let that sink in for a moment. There is no realm in the whole universe where Christ does not have supreme authority. This is a stunning In life-changing reality, if we have ears to hear it. The problem, of course, is that we're so quick to claim authority over things which we have no business claiming authority over. You know, we like to talk about our time. We talk about our money and our families, our agenda, our bodies, our health. But Jesus will have none of this. Jesus will have none of this because he unequivocally says that he has ultimate authority over everything. This is God's world, and Jesus is the king of it. If you can get your head around that reality, it'll begin to change everything for you. Now, that's a big picture truth that's worth taking some time to meditate and pray about. But in our immediate context, Jesus' authority is important because it grounds this commission that he's about to give. His authority over us undergirds the commandment. And it's the reason the commission is legitimate and binding on us. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing he commands here or anywhere else matters at all. If he doesn't have supreme authority, then he has no claim on us. But since he has risen from the dead, since he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, then these commandments are required and binding on every single believer. And we should take... Heed and listen. You know, it's also important, the authority of Jesus, because it permeates the commission itself. Did you notice that at all? If you're using your bulletin outline, this is Roman numeral three authority expressed. And you can see here that I've called out two different ways that Jesus' authority is expressed in his commission. I've called the first one delegated authority. You know, we often call this passage the Great Commission, and there's a good reason for it. A commission is a formal command from a superior to a subordinate, telling them to do something. You know, think about a soldier getting orders from a commanding officer, or maybe a civilian being drafted into the army. The commission tells him where to go and what to do. And in a similar way, Jesus is expressing his authority when he commissions and deputizes his followers. You know, if I were to come up to you after the service and say, hey, congratulations, congratulations, I have just authorized you to be an ambassador of the United States of America to the country of Japan. and I go to shake your hand. You would either laugh at me or look at me like I've got two heads. And if you thought I was serious, you might say, you can't do that. You can't do that. Only the president of the United States can appoint foreign ambassadors. And you'd be right. I can't commission you to that office. I can't delegate that authority to you because I don't have the authority to begin with. I'm not the president. You know, I can't give you something that I don't already have. So when Jesus says, you go make disciples, he is expressing the authority that he just claimed. On the basis of his authority, he is delegating to you that you ought to make disciples. There's a second way I see it here you can see the authority of Jesus as it's highlighted in the Trinity. Verse 19, we're told to baptize in the triune name of God, marking them out as the people of God. And although the whole Godhead is mentioned, we're commanded to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. This highlights his authority and his preeminence. In the next verse, Jesus gives us the comforting promise that he'll be with us forever even to the end of the age. And at first glance, this might seem a little bit mysterious because Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. But we know that he's referring here to the Holy Spirit, the spirit that Paul calls the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 9. Even in that phrase, the Spirit of Christ, we can see that Jesus is the focal point of the Trinity. It's all about who Jesus is. All believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, but it is Christ who's with us. And you don't need to be bashful about that fact. You don't need to be bashful that the Trinity highlights Jesus Christ because Jesus is the chief expression of who God is. Jesus is the glory of the Godhead. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And this commission helps establish that very fact to be true. Well, you can see in these verses here, 19 through 20, that Jesus is exercising his authority as well. We've already established that Christ's authority undergirds our passage, so let's consider what he's using his authority to do. Jesus is exercising his authority to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Just think about that for a moment. As king of the universe, Jesus wants to fill the world with his royal subjects. And this isn't a new mandate. This is something that's been happening since the beginning of creation. From the very beginning, God's design for humanity was to fill the earth and subdue it. God wanted his very good creation to be full of those who are made in his image. But when Adam sinned in the garden, that image was marred. It was marred for him, and it was marred for all of humanity that followed him. We were separated from God and unable to reflect his glory. But God, right? But God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, continued his good design even after the fall. From the moment that Adam sinned, God enacted a plan of redemption for humanity through Jesus Christ. And friends, that's very good news for us. It's very good news because God's glory and our good are bound up together. They're inextricably linked together. Later, you can see that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. He said that he would make him exceedingly fruitful and make him the father of a multitude of nations. God's purposes were not ruined by our sin. Later on, this promise is reiterated to King David. He was promised a son who would establish his kingdom forever and that he would rule over many nations. The coming of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. It's the fulfillment of God's great promise through the son of David, the son of Abraham. But friends, when Jesus Christ came, he didn't assert his rights. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be taken advantage of, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ gave up his rights, He gave up his divine rights to die on the cross for sinners so that anyone who believes in him would be saved. He gave up his divine rights to die on the cross for sinners so that the earth could be full of true children of Abraham from many nations and so that he could rule an eternal kingdom full of loyal subjects who reflect the glory of God. And we get to be a part of that. Isn't that cool? That's what this commission is telling us. We get to be a part of of the divine mandate that Jesus took. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has commissioned us to spread his message of salvation to everyone, not just to the Jews, but to every nation on the face of the earth. We have been authorized, we have been commanded to offer this pardon to the whole world. That's exciting. And I gotta say, if you're here this morning and you haven't yet submitted your life to Christ, I have a sobering word for you. You need to know that your own sense of authority, your own sense of authority over your own life is just an illusion. You may think you're in control. You may think that you own your life, but in reality you don't. You don't have the authority to be in control. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And all those who rebel against that authority will be destroyed. You know, the Bible compares the destruction that King Jesus will bring to a place of eternal torment, to a place of outer darkness, and to a place of brimstone and fire. It's a reality that's so awful That's so terrible that we can't even describe it adequately. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing. But I have good news for you. I have good news. On the basis of that same authority from King Jesus, I have been authorized to offer you pardon today. You can be forgiven from all your sins You can become a disciple of Jesus if you believe in him, if you trust in his payment on the cross for sinners, you will be forgiven. I compel you to be reconciled to God. You can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation. I'm begging you, please take me up on this generous offer while it's still still available. Take me up on this offer while you still can. I'm praying that you would. Well, as I said already, Jesus has called us to make disciples through the liberal preaching of the gospel. Because only the gospel can take a dead sinner and make him alive again. But so far, I've been guilty of using a word without properly defining it. So let me ask, what is a disciple? Well, when the Bible talks about disciples, it isn't talking about a special class of Christians. It's not as though there are regular Christians And then there are super-Christians that we call disciples, or really spiritual people that we call disciples. I mean, remember, it was at Antioch in Acts chapter 11 that the disciples were first called Christians. So when Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, he's saying, make Christians of all the nations. But even so, that word disciple is significant. It tells us at least two things. Just like the original 12 disciples All disciples of Jesus are both learners and followers. Disciples of Jesus are both learners and followers. You see, disciples sit at the feet of a teacher, right? And they learn from him. They listen to his teaching. They grow in his understanding over time. And disciples are followers, right? They follow their teacher. They aren't mere hearers of the word, but they're doers. Hearers of the word. Do you know what I mean there? You know, this is someone who's content to study something from afar without letting it impact their life at all. You know, when I think about a mere hearer, I kind of think about my experience learning French. You know, I, through high school and middle school and college, I've taken six classes on beginner and intermediate French. That's quite a bit. And, you know, I was, an exception- I was not an exceptional student at all. But that's a lot of classes, that's a lot of time. Learning a language, and despite all of that study, I can count on one hand the number of times I've used French in real life. That is, less than one time using French for every single class I took learning it. I am not a disciple of French. I was a mere hearer, not a doer. But Jesus Christ's disciples can't be like that. We must be both learners and followers. We need to put into practice the things that we learn which Jesus makes very explicit in the next verse. We'll get to that in just a little bit. In the next few sentences, Jesus describes aspects of disciple-making. First, he tells us to make disciples of all the nations. Then he tells us to baptize in God's name. Then he says that we need to obey all that he has commanded us. And finally, he says that he'll be with us always. You know, these are pivotal verses in the Christian faith, and they're helpful to our understanding of baptism the Trinity in regeneration. But if we're not careful, we can think of this as systematic theology with Jesus, systematics 101. But these aren't random topics tied together. Each of them unpacks an element of what it means to make disciples. Let's look at them one at a time. The command to baptize is part of the command to make disciples. It's helpful to remember that in the New Testament, baptism, salvation, and the giving of the Holy Spirit are tightly linked together. From the book of Acts onward, the Bible doesn't have much of a category for an unbaptized believer or for a believer who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So when we're commanded to baptize, all of these ideas are being invoked at the same time. Clearly, the idea of salvation is presented in this command. Baptism is a multifaceted analogy in the Bible. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about baptism as being baptized into Christ Jesus union with Christ Jesus is being represented, and a cleansing from our sins. This is both an immediate imputed reality and an ongoing process of sanctification that's being communicated. But baptism does more than that. It also signifies that we're entering into a new covenant with God. That's why we're commanded to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are being publicly marked out as God's people. We're being anointed to God's service. You know, Jesus' own baptism is helpful to us in this respect. Do you remember that? At Jesus' baptism, all three persons of the Godhead were present. God the Son, God the Spirit, dwelt on him, filling him, anointing him, and God the Father commissioned him with a voice calling out from heaven. So the command to baptize is a command to anoint disciples to God's service. It's a command to commission them to mark them out as commissioned by Christ, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see how all these themes tie together? These aren't random ideas that Jesus is throwing out. Well, in a similar way, the command, teach them to observe all that I commanded you, is part of making disciples as well. Remember, disciples are both learners and followers. We can see here that teaching and obedience are linked together. And that makes sense, right? Right doctrine leads to right actions. The day we start to lose the truth about what Jesus taught is the day we start to drift away from God and we start to drift away from obedience. But how do we know what Jesus commanded us? Well, to begin with, we look at the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. That's where we find the teachings and the commandments of Christ. You know, you should know that some people take this verse and they twist it and they try to make it sound like Jesus, we only have to listen to what Jesus specifically said in the Bible. They might call themselves a red-letter Christian. And I got to tell you, that is both a dangerous and, frankly, a ridiculous approach to the Bible. It's a false dichotomy to begin with because there's no contradiction between those things. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for training and righteousness. And since Jesus is the one who tasks his disciples with writing the New Testament— We look to the whole New Testament for the teachings and commandments of Christ. But if someone were to ask me to boil down the commandments of Christ, here's how I would sum them up. The commandments of Christ are a radical love for God and a radical love for the people of God. Where do I get that idea? Well, Jesus was asked a very similar question at one point. He was asked what the greatest commandment was. And do you remember what he said? He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, there are so many facets and applications of this commandment. There are so many ways that we could talk about this. But this morning, I just want to focus on the one that's right in front of us. An immediate, intangible application of our wholehearted love for God is our obedience To make disciples of all the nations. Now, I'm guessing that most of you don't think about disciple making as a love for God, but that's what it is. That's what it is. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandment to you here. Here's Jesus' commandment right here, right now, he is commanding you Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the command of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that means sharing the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors, with our families. I'm talking about personal evangelism here. I'm talking about sharing the whole gospel with somebody that they're a sinner in need of a Savior that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive their sins and that they could be saved by faith and obedience to him. Now, I know the minute I talk about personal evangelism, some of you are going to get a little bit uncomfortable here. Some of you are thinking, you don't understand, Calvin. I get really nervous about evangelism. I don't like doing it. I don't know what to say, and I'm not good at it. It would just be better if we leave that to the professionals. If that's you this morning... I have good news for you. I have really good news. Jesus never said you had to be good at evangelism. He just said you have to do it. (laughs) You just have to obey. Now, I don't want to ignore all those concerns from a certain point. I get it. You know, I don't know a single Christian who doesn't struggle with sharing the gospel, myself included. But we can't let our fears and emotions get in the way of obeying Jesus' commandment to us. If you're struggling with evangelism today, Let me give you a couple suggestions, a couple of places where you could start. You know, a good start might be to simply invite a coworker or a friend to a gospel event. You guys are so blessed. You go to a church that preaches the gospel regularly. That's a softball. That's a serious softball. Invite them to a Christmas service. Invite them to a ladies Bible study. Invite them to a men's event. Don't be content when they say no the first time. You know, there are countless testimonies of people who have turned down invitations year after year after year, and then God's Spirit softens their heart to receive an invitation, and then He saves them. There's a couple at our church who has a very similar testimony to that that I heard recently. You know, if you want your friends and your neighbors to know Christ, they need to hear from Him. No one will ever be saved through good intentions and through godly examples. That's not how it works. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. You know, another powerful witness is speaking up when you're in trial and difficulty to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Just this morning, we heard several people share about trials that God has brought into their lives. You know, maybe you're plagued with a long-standing health issue. Maybe your job isn't as secure as you'd like it to be or your family isn't as close as you wish it was. Maybe you've lost part of your family. I'm hoping that you suffer well in those difficulties. I'm hoping that you suffer without grumbling, without anxiety. But it's not enough for you to silently suffer well in your trials. I want you to suffer well, but I also want you to give glory to God who enables you to do that. I want you to magnify Christ for the eternal hope that he has purchased for you at the cross. Brothers and sisters, that is a testimony that will make the world sit up and notice. You know, maybe some of you have heard a quote attributed to St. Francis. He said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You know, if that's your orientation to evangelism, you need to repent right now. That is not how salvation works. That is not how salvation works. The Bible is clear that faith is through hearing, and hearing is through the word of Christ. Each and every one of us needs to share the gospel with those around us. And of course, we're also commanded to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. True discipleship is about mutual accountability in our walk. It's about helping each other get to heaven. We can't be content to simply parachute in, share the gospel, and then leave. Now, I know that sometimes circumstances allow for a one-off opportunity to share the gospel. Take advantage of that. But usually, God puts us around believers for a season so that we can teach And admonish each other so that we can help each other get to glory. You know, I think about the story of hopeful and Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember at one point they're walking through an enchanted ground full of spiritual sleepiness towards the end of their journey? And they're tempted to fall asleep into a slumber from which they will never awake. And to fight off that temptation, they quiz each other on aspects of salvation. And they rehearse their own conversion stories until the danger is past. That's right. They're building each other up. They're teaching each other. They're admonishing each other for the good of their souls. You guys are so privileged to have teaching here at Christ Fellowship Church that is gospel-centered each and every week. You know, maybe you just need to be better about soaking up that teaching so that you could pour it out to others. You can't give something that you don't have. Maybe you, be, maybe you need to make it your aim to show up to church well-rested and engaged, ready to take in the words of Christ. Maybe an application for you is your fellowship groups, your home fellowships. I'm not just talking about attending those, although of course I mean that, but I'm talking about showing up to those ready and engaged, prepared to interact on God's word, prepared to pray for your brothers and sisters. Maybe there's a thought from last Sunday's sermon that's been really helpful to you during the week. Do you think about coming to your group ready to share that, ready to build up someone else's soul, rather than just keeping that to yourself. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to teach others to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And this kind of discipleship takes real work. I'm not making light of it. It might mean asking another couple out for dinner just so you can ask how their walk is going. Or calling up a lady at the church and saying, hey, can we get coffee? I want to hear how your marriage has been. Can I build you up in your faith? What a blessing to have a church that works that and weaves that into the normal warp and woof of life, you've got so many opportunities right in front of you. Start by taking advantage of those. So I have a question for you as we close. My question is, how is your love for Christ doing? Those who love him will keep his commandments. I imagine that some of you are listening to this commandment from Jesus and your heart feels a little bit heavy. Or a little bit cold. Maybe you've lost your zeal and your passion for making disciples. Maybe you've never had it to begin with. If that's you, let me suggest a few diagnostic questions to get at the root of the problem. Because this kind of malaise is almost always symptomatic of a deeper issue, of a more significant spiritual problem. As I go through these questions, consider each one carefully, and then give yourself an honest, assessment. My first question is, do you appreciate the destruction you were saved from? And are you overjoyed by the salvation that you've received? If you don't, you'll be cold. Do you consider yourself dead to your old life and in living dedication to Christ in living service to Christ? Is that your identity? Are you an ambassador for Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as an accountant? Is that your identity? Question three, do you love God's law? Is it sweeter than honey and more precious than gold to you? You won't share it if it isn't. You won't teach it if it's not precious. Do you practice God's law? Do you teach it and model it in your home? You know, nothing hampers discipleship quite like unrepentant sin and hypocrisy. Are you comforted by the Holy Spirit such that anxiety doesn't shake you anymore when circumstances don't go your way? If you answered no to any of those questions, your problem isn't that you're bad at evangelism and discipleship. Your problem is that you've grown cold to the glory of the gospel and you've forgotten your new identity in Jesus Christ. If that's you, if that's you, you need to repent this morning. You need to go to Jesus Christ. You need to ask him to rekindle your passion. Ask him to give you a zeal for the glory of the gospel. Ask him to remind you that you have been commissioned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to go make disciples of all the nations. His spirit will empower you to the task. That's why he gave it to us. If you feel inadequate, that's okay. He has given us his Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Jesus Christ empowers us to do everything that he has commanded us. May God give us the grace to rest in that, to trust and to obey. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have given all things into Jesus' hand. You have given him all authority in heaven and on earth. Father, we are so grateful that he is using his authority right now to save sinners and not to condemn them. Please give us the grace to embrace that authority. Help us to be good soldiers, good ambassadors for Christ. We want to be obedient and we need the help of your Holy Spirit to do that. Father, I pray that you would hold us fast until you finish your work when the earth is full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Amen.